Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From MCIE. Hey, y'all. Just a content warning about today's episode, depictions of the living conditions of institutions for people with disabilities in the 1960s will be discussed as well as certain attitudes about people with disabilities that work there. Early in her career, Carol Quirk, CEO of MCIE, worked in institutions, first as a consultant and then as a psychologist. When she first opened the book Unsilenced, a teacher's year of battles, breakthroughs, and life-changing lessons at Belchertown State School by Howard Shane, memories of her experience began flooding back. Drab visually, where you're seeing human beings in states that you would not want your own person, relative. Um, the smells of people who are not bathed well enough. On top of that, whatever disinfectant might be used. The sounds of people moaning and groaning and calling out and shrieking and laughing. It, it's shocking. It's, it, it's shocking. And then the other part for me is how we warehoused human beings and treating people in ways that we would not to this day, we would not treat animals that way. That would not be acceptable. Um, those are all things that kept coming to me as I was reading his book. But if one good thing came out of working at these institutions, it put her on a path to advocate for inclusion for people with disabilities. It had a definite um, and significant role on where I ended up. Um, the first time I was working in an institution, I was working for a state agency. And um, as part of this agency, we were, I was very young. I can't believe they let me do this. Um, we were consultants um, around uh, supporting people with developmental and uh, intellectual disabilities related to problem behavior. And so um, I was asked to go to Southbury Training School to work with the residential supervisors who each supervised a what they called cottage because you lived in a building called a cottage, even though there was nothing cottage-like related to it. Um, 
and they were going supposed to learn behavioral strategies so they could teach their um, cottage attendants how to support problem behavior or teach use teaching strategies. So um, I was there, I ended up staying on campus. They had housing for people who were visiting and um, taught behavioral strategies. Each person had to take one um, resident who they were going to apply what they were learning. And then they also had to take one cottage and do something as a group that would improve the lives of the people um, who lived there. Um, and a psychologist who was there, kind of monitor, my monitor, who was monitoring what I was doing, he, was, he kept saying, the only reason you can do what you're doing, because they were wildly successful at making change, but let me tell you, it wasn't hard. Um, but the only reason you can do what you're doing is because you're from the outside. And some of the changes were things like, um, in this dining room, when you bring all the residents who lived in the cottage there, they had to have clothes on and they had to have forks as well as spoons. And they had to have their whole meal all at once and not bring the roll out, bring the plate out, bring the milk out. And, um, and the third thing was that the attendants couldn't yell. So those were the three interventions, fork as well as spoon, meal all at once and nobody else, um, wildly successful. Um, so I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, this guy who was a psychologist there, why couldn't he do what I was doing? And he was older than me, more experienced than me. And I, I, I had to believe that you could make change from the inside. So I deliberately sought a position in an institution. Um, and I was qualified as a psychologist. So I got a job in an institution in North Carolina as a psychologist, um, one of the first people who was under my supervision was a young woman who spent 23 out of 24 hours in a straitjacket. Um, and she couldn't really speak. She could speak a few words. Uh, she had severe self-injury and used a wheelchair when she was out of the straitjacket because she couldn't walk because she didn't exercise. Um, within a year and a half, she was walking using words, dressing herself, feeding herself, and attending the school that was on the, the grounds. But that influence was personal, just like Howard Shane's influence was very personal and didn't change the system. And I was not changing the system. And I, I saw that I could make change in the lives of a few people, but I was not in any position to tell anybody certainly all those people above me what to do. So I, I, I then I came to the conclusion that the only way to make change was to have that high level of influence or, and or be from the outside where you could come in and um, act in a way that gave us uh, responsibility to the people who were there who had it, but influence them to make the changes to better lives of people with disabilities. And so I knew I had to learn things. I had to learn about systems change. I had to learn about how to run a business. I had to learn about budgeting. I had to learn about um, what worked, what are the strategies, the, it, the teaching strategies. So I moved over and took more, uh, I got my doctorate, took coursework in education and business. Um, 
in order to figure out how to do something different to make a difference. So yeah, it really did. <laughs> <laughs> it really did uh, put you on the path you are now. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what would you want anyone who's listening to this interview or reading Howard's book, like what would you want them to learn from this experience from, you know, your descriptions and from Howard's, Howard's story? Um, I think I would want them to think about the assumptions they make about people with obvious disabilities, especially when they see them in a group. Um, in both institutions, I was in resident, residential facilities, you know, the, the units or the cottages. And the descriptions that I gave you about people moaning, groaning, uh, moving, rocking, I saw young people eating threads that they tore off their sheets or off their clothing. Um, I, this is contrasted with several years later after this experience, I went to a conference and it was specifically for autistic people who used augmentative communication or alternative communication or typed. And um, there were very few non-autistic people other than the, the helpers. You know, whether it was a family member who brought them or a um, aide or somebody, a service provider. Um, so I'd say nearly 50% of the people in attendance were not only autistic, but were severely impacted in terms of their communication and, and behavior. And I stood there and they were all doing the same things that I saw in the institution behaviorally. And these are communicators, maybe in alternative ways, but people who express their thoughts and choices and interests. And that hit me like a blow. What had we done as a humanity where we were warehousing these people, making an assumption that they didn't care, they didn't understand, they had no cognitive ability. And that is not true. How many of them were actually autistic people who couldn't communicate? And so I think the thing, I know this is a long way to get to it, but the thing that I would want people to think about in today's world, when we put students with significant cognitive disabilities in a separate classroom for the majority of the day, when you look at what they're doing, you can see children who are not readers probably, who are bare communicators, who um, are thought not to be able to achieve grade level curriculum, and maybe they, maybe they won't ever. But our whole assumption about who they are once they're in a group is to other them and think of them as less, less capable, less knowing, and our expectations drop. And they don't get the exposure to the social opportunities, let alone um, the academic. I know that Howard said in his interview that we have to think about times, it's not all about inclusion. We have to think about times when we can teach the specific things that um, a person might need, especially if they're not, they need alternate communication. There, there may be other learning needs and 
Um, I agree that for many people, there may be that intensive time for specific instruction, but inclusion is not just about place as we always talk about at MCIE. Yes, you may have those times for very specific, unique instruction, but inclusion is really about those relationships and opportunities to experience what the rest of humanity is experiencing. My name is Tim Viegas, and you are listening to the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. To find out more about who we are and what we do, check us out at thinkinclusive.us or on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Also, take our podcast listener survey. Your responses will help us develop a better podcast experience. Go to bit.ly slash ti podcast survey to submit your responses. We appreciate it. Today on the podcast, we talk to Howard Shane, author of the book, Unsilenced. He is also an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School and the director of the Autism Language Program at Boston Children's Hospital. We talk about what it was like to work at Belchertown State School, an institution for people with disabilities in the 1960s. We also highlight some of the stories from his book, including how some of his students used an early form of augmentative and alternative communication. Thanks so much for listening. I'm glad you're here. And now, our interview with Howard Shane. Today on the Think Inclusive podcast, we have Dr. Howard Shane, who is an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School and the director of the Autism Language Program at Boston Children's Hospital. He has designed more than a dozen computer applications used widely by persons with disabilities and holds two U.S. patents. Howard has received the honors of the Association Distinction for the American Speech and Hearing Association, to which he is a fellow. And in 2019, he was the recipient of the Frank F. Kleffner Lifetime Clinical Career Award. Dr. Shane has also received the Goldenson Award for Innovations in Technology from the United Cerebral Palsy Association and authored numerous papers and chapters on severe speech impairment, lectured throughout the world on the topic, and produced numerous computer-based innovations enjoyed by persons with complex communication disorders. Howard Shane, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Uh, well, I would love it if you would introduce yourself to our audience of educators and families of children with disabilities. We're, we're going to talk about your book that you um, that you wrote called Unsilenced, uh, but uh, maybe people don't know who you are. So would you spend a, a couple minutes uh, introducing yourself? Sure. Well, um, I'm Howard Shane, as you mentioned, and um, I've been at the Boston Children's Hospital for the past 44 years, where I've had the opportunity to see, I estimate, um, over 10,000 children in our clinics. My uh, focus ever since I started out as a teacher at the Belchertown State School in 1969, my focus has really been, my professional's focus has really been working with children who are um, have what we would consider minimally verbal, a lot of other terms, sometimes the nonverbal, 
non-speaking and so forth, but um, children with significant, you know, complex communication problems. Could you um, set the stage a little bit on what actually the living conditions were like in Belchertown when you first arrived? Well, I, I think it's important to understand me as a person back then. <clears throat> I had just graduated from college. I had a, a minor in education. I was going to be a history teacher. And at the time and in the uh, where I was living, uh, there were no jobs in, uh, you know, in history, teaching, you know, a his history teacher in a high school. And the only job in education that was available was at, at the at Belchertown State School. They and um, I was, uh, you know, accepted basically by a phone call. I had uh, no preparation. Uh, I did have a minor in education, but I didn't have preparation to work with individuals who uh, had, um, you know, would, would considered having a disability. So I arrive at, at Belchertown. I meet the director of education. I go to the infirmary building where I was going to be the teacher. And I walked in and um, the moment I walked into the building, my life changed. It was, um, you know, you were assaulted by the odor, you were assaulted by the noise. And then we did a tour of the building and I saw, you know, young children uh, living in, in um, a dormitory, dormitory style, but you know, 30 people in a room. Um, they were in iron beds or cribs. Um, the, the women on the first floor, men on the second floor, you know, the boy of all ages. And um, it was just nothing I had ever encountered and I, or, or, or um, you know, even imagined existed. I was a pretty naive 22 year old guy. So y you did have some um, training to be a teacher, um, although you know, like you said, this was the job that was available, right? Um, yes. So in, you know, in the book, you talk about using students' interests to guide them to learn. Was that something that was explicitly taught to you or was that just innate or something that, that, that you, you thought was a good idea and you went with it? Well, uh, there was no real curriculum for me. Uh, that had been designed. And uh, I knew that from my own, um, the way I approach life, uh, you know, I, I, when, when it's something of interest, it makes a, a significant difference to the way you approach it, the way you learn about it. And um, I just felt that that, was, uh, that would be important in, in my way of teaching. At the time, I had also just finished reading the book Summerhill, which many people don't aren't aware of, but it was a it was a philosophy that was started in England by A. S. Neal, and basically he was taking um, troubled uh, teenagers, and he created this school called Summerhill, and he took their interests and uh, he was able to des design a personalized curriculum based on their their own interests. Uh, one person stood out was a, a troubled youth who was interested in automobiles and mechanics and his whole curriculum was around that. And it, 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 it was clear to me that I could, you know, do the same thing uh, or at least approach it that way at, at, at Belchertown. And um, so I, I, I tried to incorporate that kind of thinking um, 
and I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a way of approaching education that's followed me throughout my career. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I would say there's, there's a lot of people saying that now, right? <laughs> so yeah. it, it definitely, that idea has, um, has grown, uh, as, as almost a best practice or is a best practice, uh, in education. So, yeah. And I, I think we're beginning to see that, you know, that, you know, Howard Gardner's work on multiple intelligences that, that people are, you know, are simply different. And, um, if we can tap into and, and, and un better understand where their, uh, in interests and strengths are, um, we can, we can build upon that. And, you know, knowing that, that uh, life experiences uh, and what you're going to do and enjoy in part is obviously shaped by the, the things that you're interested in and everybody's different. Let's talk about making change. How long were you at Belchertown? Um, a year. A year. Okay. So in that year, do, do you feel like you were able to make change from the inside the institution or did you feel like in hindsight, when you left, you were able to make more change? I think that um, this was the beginning of um, the deinstitutionalization movement. And um, I think the impact I had was um, uh, some communication that I had with the, um, the, the Springfield Union in, in giving them information about what I thought was, un, you know, in the injustices of that situation. But clearly, leaving the institution and getting myself uh, you know, more, you know, becoming more educated. Um, I left and uh, ultimately years later, well, a few years later, I went to Syracuse and worked with uh, Dr. Burton Blatt, um, who was the Dean of Education. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, some of our readers might, your listeners might be, um, but he had written a book uh, called Christmas in Purgatory, where he went into institutions with a camera and then wrote a beautiful poetic anthology uh, and I was part of his institute um, uh, on uh, institute on um, for uh, you know basically deinstitutionalization, um, and that plus um, working with Dr. Ruth Lencione, who was specialized in uh, was a specialist in cerebral palsy communication. Um, it was kind of a perfect fit for me, and I had you know I had the the opportunity to then meet with like-minded people mm. uh, at, at, at Bert Blatt's uh, Center on Human Policy. Um, it was a very exciting time because we were right at the, the, the threshold of, 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 of change. And then Wolf Wolfensberger uh, joined the faculty. And so it was a very exciting time to be there. Your time at Belchertown really set your trajectory, right, towards yeah. making change. Um, and then all the skills that you have brought with, um, you know, developing, uh, programs for communication and, uh, and for improving the lives of people with disabilities. Um, you know, I mean, do you think you would have gone into this area if you like, let's say you didn't get that job at Belchertown and you, and you did get a job as a, as a history teacher? Like where do you, how, how different would your life be? <laughs> I think my life would be complete, would have been completely different. I probably, I, I, I'm, I'd like to think that I would have been a history teacher and would have liked it, but you know, maybe I would have become bored. I mean, it's so hard to predict. Um, once I got to Belchertown and once I accepted 
where where I was and what I was doing, it um, it became an obsessive focus. I don't know if I would have been as excited about some you know history, not that it is exciting. Um, I don't know. Maybe I would have sold encyclopedias or you know sold cars or something. I mean, I just don't know. Um, but that it definitely set the trajectory. Um, family friends will say to me now, um, you're doing the same thing you were doing at Belchertown, only the the uh, opportunities are different. Um, you know, along came technology in the early 80s. Uh, you know, that sort of um, confluence of uh, deinstitutionalization and and the, the computer revolution um, gave me and others an opportunity to sort of invent and, and to start to create um, different types of communication um, uh, applications and, and hardware and so forth. Um, so that was something that that was, you know, really unique and important to me. A, a story in the book that I really love is how you describe um, the communication system that you that you made. It, it was a clock, right? It was a it was a okay. clock. And so, well, I don't know. I, I uh, maybe you could describe it for our our listeners because um, it, it reminded me of of you know, I mean, it was obviously early technology, and it was I think it was the first technology, right? Of of uh, of how a, a person could select something, and then then visually scanning. So why don't you explain it? Because I'm not going to be able to explain it, but the way that okay. you could. <laughs> well, it, it was. Um... It appeared, it, it, it occurred to me that I, in looking at a, a second hand on a watch where the second hand was pointing to numbers, that why couldn't you point to letters or point to pictures and so forth. And um, with that in mind, I you know, just put a template uh, on an old clock and we took off the hour and minute hand and just had the second hand going around. And then from there, I worked with some university students and uh, and a professor at at, uh, at the engineering school at UMass. And we began to build something that allowed this type of what later became known as scanning uh, and controlling and using a mercury switch attached to the wrist by turning your wrist, it completed the circuit and it would start or stop um, this light going around the circumference of a circle. So it was, it, 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 it's also kind of a, a historical look at the beginning of AAC. Now, I don't want to claim that I'm the first person that ever thought about, you know, something like that. There was work going on uh, in other places, but, you know, we, we just weren't in touch with each other. But eventually it became what's now known as augmentative and alternative communication. And, you know, then we, you know, I was part of the formation of the name, you know, augmentative and alternative communication and got to know other people. And then it became a small industry of, of mom and pop stores. And now, you know, we take an iPad you know, developed by Apple and we can, you know, create, you know, incredible opportunities or using an Apple watch. Um, so, you know, by, by just kind of staying in, in touch with consumer products and watching the development of technology, you know, all of this just uh, grew. Let's talk about the, you know, the, fu the future, because you saw this technology and you said, I could use this, <laughs> you know, I, I can use this to help students communicate, tell me what they want, make choices, stuff like that. Okay. So 
you know, as we've, as we've grown in technology and, and our, uh, capability, like, what do you see as our future, right? Like what are, what are some things that we could look forward to as, um, expanding on this, um, communication capability for, for people with disabilities? Well, I know that, you know, this, this, uh, wonderful podcast that you're, um, that you've created is about inclusion. And if I just take that theme and I think about technology, this, you know, technology of the, of the future and, um, you know, some of the futures here, but I think we'll have a, can have a real bearing on inclusion. So for example, I mean, right now we, we just finished uh, some studies using the Apple watch as a way of delivering cues to children on the autism spectrum. So we compared uh, the ability to read an Apple watch when you receive a cue to looking at that cue being delivered by an iPad. And we found that it was, they were comparable. And then we did a small study to get children to be able to uh, deal with the sensation of wearing an Apple watch. And then we did a study on usability where they could interpret the haptic or an auditory cue of the watch and be able to receive um, the, the cue um, itself. Um, being able to do that uh, gives an opportunity for things such as what I would call social pragmatic mentoring. So a child has some behaviors that a teacher or a family would like to um, um, reduce in the, in the community. Well, how about just sending them a cue rather than saying, hey, Johnny, you know, stop flapping your hands or you're standing too close or you're chewing with your mouth open. Why not just send them a very subtle cue? Well, we're working on those skills, but let's, let's give them the reminders, but let's not call attention to them. Um, so little things like that. Um, smaller, more wearable AAC technology, better voices, uh, more childlike voices, you know, more natural voices. Um, I'm picturing um, artificial intelligence. We, you know, our behaviorists are getting better at being able to analyze behavior and trying to improve it, but we, we miss the mark sometimes. Well, what if we were just monitoring, you know, the heart rate or, or, or galvanic skin responses because a child is getting anxious and we can, we see that and um, we notice in advance. So rather than letting that behavior escalate, we, we get that reading and we, you know, throw them in the ball pit and let them relax. So I think that the future is going to allow that to happen. Our artificial intelligence is going to um, be able to capture the human mind just can't can't deal with so many variables to sometimes be able to predict what's going to happen. But just imagine that, you know, I had Wheaties for breakfast. Well, maybe there's gluten there. And then there's there's uh, all these other little things that happen that all gets captured. And then then the the AI is kind of contemplating all this. And maybe we can begin to get better understanding of why that behavior is what it is. So I'm and I'm just looking at, you know, those kinds of opportunities. So, um, you know, the, the future is, you know, I, I, and, and they're going to be compute. It's consumer based. It's not, they're not going to be, you know, specialized equipment. They're going to be really consumer based uh, materials. In my clinical office, I had a, uh, two posters. One was, um, uh, Jefferson airplane and one was Jefferson starship. Um, and folks would often ask me about those and, you know, are you a great, you know, Jefferson airplane 
fan. I said, well, they were, they had good music, but it was a constant reminder to me that you have to evolve from being an airplane, you know, to being the starship. And that's, that's what it's been for me for 40, 52 years, I guess, is just moving from a, from an airplane to a starship and it, it just continues. And it, it, and it, it, believe me, it's, it, it's just my ability to just, you know, see, see what's available and just kind of, and my, my obsessive nature looking at how do, how could I turn this into something that's going to help the child who, who isn't, can't speak or has a behavior problem or, um, you know, just trying to change behavior. So, yeah. So you, you really see the, the consumer market for, you know, computers, watches, you know, whatever smart technology, AI, um, as we're going to be using technology that's available for everyone. Um, but certain people can use aspects of that technology to make it more, to make life more accessible. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And, you know, this work going on, we, we have a, a project going on now with augmented reality where we're trying to teach language concepts. And I, I, I use augmented reality to take a, a farm scene and I want to teach the concept of pushing. So I have the farmer, you know, pushing the wagon, but I build that little sentence and then uh, that scene becomes alive as I'm looking through my iPad screen. I mean, there's just there's just so much in the way of excitement and, and, and children with disabilities, children in general are drawn to the screen. So why don't we use that as a medium to teach? Mm. And, you know, not that we're, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm the only person. The world <laughs> is filled with people who are doing exciting work. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just, I, I just am so enamored with it all. Let's talk a little bit more about our educational system as it stands right now. Um, and I'm wondering if you see, if you see the um, system as two separate systems, right? We special education, general education, and um, I'd love to know your thoughts about how we can improve that. Like, whether is it just a matter of like, well, we just got to improve special education services so that they're more inclusive and they have more technology and stuff like that, or is it really? We need another system. I guess that's my question. I think we need a different uh, philosophical orientation. <clears throat> I mean, I think we start with language. I mean, you know, just even just calling it special education and, and maybe even the word inclusion. I mean, I, I just think that I think that what we what we need to be um, looking at is, uh, is 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 an educational approach where, you know, every child is, you know, obviously you want to have, you know, they want to be with it, with other children to the maximum de degree possible. But if we, if we call them, you know, substantially separate uh, or segregated classrooms, I mean, it's that kind of language, is, which I think is just, which, which is just all wrong. I think that we, that we want to, we want children to be together. But part of it is a, is, is a philosophy where, um, children are just seen as children, and it, maybe it's a utopian dream. But, you know, I'm reminded of um, a book I read a number of years ago by Nora Gross. Uh, it was called uh, Everybody Here uh, Speaks uh, Spoke Sign Language. And it's about um, the deaf community on Martha's Vineyard that uh, 
in before it became what Martha's Vineyard is now as a vacation land, it was a lot of people from a particular region in England came to Martha's Vineyard and they had a, um, a dominant gene that led to a lot of deafness. So a, a vast majority of people on Martha's Vineyard signed. And in the book, they're talking, this interviewer is talking to this woman who experienced that. And she asked about some person, you know, Jack Jones. What about Jack Jones? She said, oh, he was this tall guy with red hair and freckles, and he was very strong. And then the interviewer, Nora, said, well, uh, wasn't he deaf? And she said, oh, yeah, 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 he was deaf. That's, that's when we're going to clearly have, um, you know, in, in, an inclusive philosophy. So, you know, it, how do we go about that? Uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that uh, we start with, with uh, children being in, in classrooms and just as you get called out, you're gonna go to band or you're gonna go to um, some program. So you go off and you do some specialized reading and it, just letting children be together as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, we have to be realistic that there are uh, learning differences and you can't just throw children who have, you know, you know significant learning difficulties or who are minimally verbal, just putting them into a class and, and expect them to be learning. But there, there are ways of, 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 of maximizing their, their interactions, um, bringing them into situations where they're learning and then letting them experience that. But at the same time, you know, it sort of starts with how do we get the whole school to kind of understand that? I work with a school in upstate New York uh, as a, a research project and, <clears throat> and in their, their school, um, then this is, can I mention the school itself? That, and it's found me. It's the Fayetteville Manlius School in upstate New York. And um, in their elementary school, one of their elementary schools where we have our um, a, a program, um, the, there are children who are in a sort of su substantially separate situation, but every classroom in the school is, it, it, so it, it's O'Neill is the last teacher of the teacher, the last name of the teacher, it's O'Neill's Ocean. And another teacher could be Jones, uh, Jones's Jupiter, but you know, that's a general ed classroom. Mm -hmm. It's not this separate classroom. So I think it comes with language, it comes with all the technology opportunities, it comes with a philosophy of, you know, maximum exposure. I mean, that's, that's the way I see it. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, I think there's much to be done, you know, a great deal of work in my little utopian dream, but that's how I think it should be approached. I think a lot of people share that dream. <laughs> I hope so. Again, I, I, this is just the way I think. And I know that there are a lot of much smarter people than me and who think about these things. Right. Right. Um, yeah, but, um, that's, I, I think that's why I, I'm excited for our listeners to hear your story and your thoughts um, because, you know, we, we do need to, we need to share each other's dream. We need to share our dreams with each other is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, yes. and I, I, I love the, the way that you're kind of framing technology as a, as a, as a way that our society can be more inclusive. Um, Cause I, I do think that that's, I think that is our future, you know? Um, so thank you for your thoughts about that. So as you were writing the book, was there a particular memory as you were writing that gained a new significance as you wrote it? Um, anything that just was like, Oh, 
now I'm remembering something different or something, you know, uh, more significant about it. I, I think that when I was writing the book, uh, as I was capturing moments and uh, situations, uh, and, and it was it was about the, the students, uh, for one, and, 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 a, and a mentor that who came to my class and uh, really was a became a, a major force in my thinking as a mentor. And uh, I think every you know, he was the mentor that every 22 year old needs in order to sort of understand who they are and where they're going. But as I wrote about the students, it, it, it just made me um, all the more fond of them and what they what they did for me. Um, it and one uh, uh, there's one um, student who became a lifelong uh, friend. Um, he had cerebral palsy, Ron, um, and um, we'd meet regularly. Uh, you know, long after Belchertown, I was the best man in his wedding. Um, uh, we went to Red Sox games. When he finally got out and was living in the community, he was um, he was just this good guy. He couldn't speak. But he had, you know, I, and so I just happened to have this this um, clinic at Boston Children's Hospital where he'd come and get, you know, the latest technologies. But you know, he was a popular person out in Western Massachusetts, and you know, he uh, he went to Foxwoods and he'd go drinking, and he, you know, loved the Red Sox, and um, he did he wouldn't have had that opportunity if we still had um, institutions. But uh, you know, I, it, it made me all the more realize, you know, who these people were. And now, I mean, I tried to make that, you know, part of the book is, it's not just about the bleakness of the institution, but it's, it's about what life was like for them, how, how the, in, how the setting affected them. And, uh, um, so I guess the highlight is just, uh, how it, 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 it brought to life what my, what, what, what it was like for me there and what they were like. And so I guess that's, 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 that's how it, uh, just kind of came down. Uh, well, we appreciate you uh, being on the podcast and talking about your book. Um, it's fantastic. Make sure you go ahead and uh, get a copy of Unsilenced uh, by Dr. Howard Shane. Um, uh, Dr. Shane, is there anything that else that you wanted to, you know, plug? Um, you know, is there like if someone wanted to get a hold of you and ask you questions, you know, maybe they read the book and they, you know, they really or interested yep. in something they read, how can people get a hold of you? Um, they can uh, get a hold of me. I'm at Boston Children's, Howard.Shane at children's.harvard.edu. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm always um, interested in comments, um, good and bad. Uh, so that's, uh, they certainly can do that. Um, plugging, I, I want to plug a project that I'm doing right now. Um, I'm writing... Um, uh, a, a children's book. Uh, it's a series of different stories about uh, children I've seen in my clinic. And it's not about them per se, but it's about their skill set. And uh, it's, 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 it's in the title, it's uh, about excellent, uh, my excellent superpowers. So I take children with on the autism spectrum who have um, uh, unusual talents, uh, extraordinary Lego skills, uh, and our um, extraordinary memory for, for dates and calendar events and so forth, and then write stories that sort of fictionalized fiction so that others, other children in the class or in their environment, in their 
uh, in their neighborhoods can come to understand the extraordinary skills that they have. And that sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier that, you know, you, if you if you look at everybody who the, the kind of the talents they have and 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 and, and reinforce those talents and, and and expand upon them. So these stories, these five stories, are about individuals who have unique talents and how they use those talents um, uh, productively and how it affects other people. So uh, that's that's a project I'm doing now, and that hopefully will be out in six months to eight months. It's being published by the American Speech and Hearing Association, their publishing house. Um, so get on the lookout and you absolutely need to buy that. And um, and of course, get get um, on your bookshelf uh, unsilenced. Well, Dr. Howard Shane, thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, the Anchor app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a question or comment? Email us your feedback at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., and Kathleen T., for their continued support of the podcast. When you become a patron, your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. And you could even get a shout out like the fine people we just mentioned. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today and get access to all our unedited interviews, including our conversation with Howard Shane. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at MCIE.org. We will be back in a couple of weeks with our interview with Anthony Iani, author of the book Centered, Autism, Basketball, and one athlete's dreams. Thank you for your time and attention. And until next time, remember, inclusion always works. Being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.